This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 12 in our series for 2015. And today's date is the 24th of April, 2015. And Leon, what's on the menu for this week? Well, Gary, we have a terrific interview with Drew Banks. Uh, He's going to talk to us all about his brand new consumer app, Prazy that turns photos into videos to help share moments, tell stories, and it's great for business. Yeah, it's very interesting, actually. It's interesting technology, and I think it proves that uh, mobile is where we're all going. Absolutely. And then we've got a terrific interview with BT Financial Group economist Chris Caton, and he's going to talk to us all about the global economy uh, and, uh, and its consequences for Australia which uh, may be uh, very interesting, I think, to uh, put it mildly. But uh, anyway, so let's listen to Drew. Drew, tell us about Nutshell. How does it work? So Nutshell is a video app um, that allows you to take three pictures and it threads together a video out of those pictures and lets you annotate that video so you can add text or, or little custom animations. So if you're, say, doing a burst shot, on an iPhone, uh, you could stitch those all together into a video. How is it like a slideshow? Is it is it actually a video file? It's actually a video. You end up with an MP4 file. Uh-huh. Basically, you document these experiences you're having, whether it's your child playing or you know micro instructions that you're trying to leave on how to you know use your radio or your stereo. It, it has a a lot of uses, um, and we're very interested in seeing how how people adopt it and use it across the world. So, I mean, what are the implications then for uh, business, for something like that? Well, for business adoption, we I, I personally think it's going to go down the sort of micro-instruction path. I can see sort of in our product development how you could you could stitch together three images to, you know, for a product manager to show a UI developer how they would like the UI. Much easier than, you know, going into a deep into an application. You can just do it in a matter of seconds. I see that being used a lot in business. I also see in the promotional aspects of business, you know, instead of including video in a presentation that you have for your target audience, you would do an annotated video. So it gives a lot more versatility there. And again, an annotated video that anyone can take, three simple images, um, and then, you know, and then put the text in and you've got, you know, something that's much sort of more explanatory. Now, I've got three images, four images, and I'm going to annotate it. So in the MP4 file, the image would be extended in terms of time? Yeah, so the basically when you're taking the three images, it's actually taking a video. Um, but for UI simplicity, we say take three images and it'll stitch together. Um, if the images are taken too far apart, there's a mathematical interpolation that happens to actually connect those images in a way that feels like a contiguous video. You get that the first time you try taking a nutshell um, you'll see how it does it, and then it's very intuitive from that point forward how the sequence in which it's easiest to create a good nutshell out of three images. And you would do this on an iPad or iPhone? Uh, you do this on, currently on an iPhone. Um, it's an iPhone app, um, and we're going to, you know, one could imagine once we see adoption of the, you know, the iPhone, we would, we would look at the Android um, phones as well. 
Android's a bit more uh, complex with the number of ha- handsets around, though, isn't it? I mean, Android's growing in popularity, although the iPhone 6, uh, you know, put a little bit of dent in that. But the, from a global adoption standpoint, uh, Android smartphones are still dominant. Um, potentially, this could actually revolutionize um presentations, couldn't it? Well, I think that, you know, it it does revolutionize what I would say is visual storytelling or visual communications. Just like Prezi, the product did that for presentations um, and capturing ideas, this nutshell lets you capture sort of moments or experiences. And I can see the two working together very nicely, as I mentioned in the promotional aspect for businesses. A lot of people embed video in their presentations. They can embed these little nutshells. And in truth, these little nutshells are small, tiny, tiny presentations, depending on how tight you can make your story. And you could take a shot of somebody tightening a bolt or looking at a bridge or something like that, but then go to a catalog or go to a manual. How would you then, you'd annotate it in text or can you annotate it with voice? It does have audio, um, but it's easy to annotate in text. You can do either. Um, You can be talking as you're taking the videos or and or you can add the text. Yeah, a very useful tool, Tiki. So a person in the field and looking at a fault, say, in a, in a, a piece of structure, could send it back with, with his notes attached to it. Exactly. So what kind of uh, response have you had to this so far? We've had a great response. We have, you know, I won't say numbers, but they have far exceeded our expectations. Um, and what I, what I love in some of the press that we've had, if people really understand, even though this is, you know, on the surface, um, a very easy to use consumer app, people have seen the connection in how we are exploring visual communications, just like we did that with Prezi. The the more astute uh, cinematographers out there, there was coverage in a company called Fast Company, which talked about how this really tackles one of the biggest um, challenges of, of movie makers today, which is sort of connection between video scenes. And I don't have the the sort of depth of knowledge of this area to talk about it with any <laughs> with any ease or or um, clarity. But um, it was really, really clear in many journalists' mind how how this is a new exploration, how Prezi is really sort of great at looking at new ways people communicate visually. Are there any particular sectors that are more interesting in this than others? Again, it's, you know, it's a week, I think, um, and we haven't scrubbed the demographics of how it's been adopted other than geography, and it has been broadly adopted across the globe, even though it's currently only in three languages, English, Spanish, and Portuguese. You know, we will at some point, you know, once once sort of the spike of adoption happens and we start looking, seeing what the active use is, we will, we will do that analysis, but we haven't done it yet. Guide tells me it's going to be huge in education for a variety of reasons, from a, from a student perspective, just because of how how easy it is to use, um, and 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 you can create something of substance uh, that you can pass along to another student or a teacher. And it, and from a teacher perspective, there is a sort of pedagogicness about the app where you you tell a story. You know, you have the beginning, middle, and end, which is what you do as a teacher, um, usually over a longer period of time during a you know 
30 or one hour class. But I think it's going to be just like Prezi has been adopted by both students and professors. I feel like Nutshell will be as well. The, the relationship between Prezi and, and Nutshell, Nutshell could be a provider to Prezi. Or how do you see it, that? The guy that came up with Prezi, the original founder, um, now explores new ways of visual communication within Prezi. And we had been noticing that Prezi would was used in addition to education and business. It was used by people telling personal stories of their vacations. Some people, we've seen proposals in Prezi, capturing, you know, um, a child's first steps in Prezi. So we were exploring how to do that with video more effectively than a simple video insert, or Adam was doing that. And when he presented Prezi to the you know executive team and the board, we said, you know, that looks like it could be a standalone application or standalone app, which is why we launched first in Nutshell, and I can completely see, see it being integrated more tightly into Prezi. So where to from here now? Well, in Prezi, we're going to continue to, you know, explore how to make, you know, presentations more visually engaging, both for the presenter and for the audience. And with Nutshell, we're going to watch closely at the adoption of Nutshell and see that both does it stand alone as an application, which will continue to gain steam, and is there this tighter integration that might my gut says there is, but we want to see that, you know, that adoption. And you will then uh, track which sectors are using it and uh, go from there. Yeah, we'll see. You know, is it is it like the Prezi itself? Did it get, Does it start in consumer, go to education, and then move into business? Because that was the path of Prezi. My gut says the same thing's going to happen with Nutshell, but we want to watch and not just go by gut, go by data. This is the post the PowerPoint era, by the sound of it. The well, I think it is the post slide era. I think what we're going to see in visual communications um, over the next ten years is what's happened in cinema over the past fifty years. If you go back, you know, pre CGI movies were made by splicing frames together. They were very dialogue heavy scenes, and now. Movies are immersive experiences where all the dialogue is really tight and edited. And I think that's what's happening in visual in presentations today. You, you know, slide after slide of text-heavy data doesn't hold the attention of an audience anymore. Um, so we're seeing these tighter, immersive visual experiences to engage our audiences. Drew Banks, thank you very much for your time. Thanks thank you. Me. So what do you think about that, Liam? Well, you're right. I mean, it really does tell us that mobile is where it's all at now. Everything is going mobile. Yeah, mobile and Wi-Fi. I mean, it's access everywhere. I've just done a couple of weeks in France, and the mobile, the Wi-Fi there is uh, is fantastic. It's really good. And right across Europe, it's like that. And I think, you know, when the NBN finally gets up, or if it does get up and if Wi-Fi is produced, uh, we're going to see the same sort of developments in Australia. Of course, and uh, Google has just changed its uh, algorithms for its websites now. that So the websites recognised on Google are now have to be mobile-friendly. Absolutely right, and I think it's totally essential. So we're now going to talk to Chris Caton. Chris Caton, what are the big trends you see now happening with the global economy? Well, you'd have to say that they're disparate right now. Uh, we seem to do the same thing every year. We seem to start off with reasonable expectations of growth and then chip away at them uh, as the year goes on. And that pattern is being followed right now in uh, the US and in China. 
and to a lesser extent in Japan, but it is being spectacularly not followed in Europe. Uh, so let's deal with them in turn. In in the US, um, everybody's given up on the first quarter. It was severely affected by the weather, but also by a port strike on the West Coast, uh, and also by falling investment in the energy sector, and also by the strength of the US dollar. So we don't have first quarter GDP growth yet, but it'll probably come in around about one to one and a half percent annualized rate as the US does it. But the the new story, if you like, about Q1 is not so much about Q1, but about March. Uh, in the month of March, whether you look at employment or industrial production or retail sales or housing starts, that every single one of these disappointed. And what that means is low growth in the first quarter and, and not all that much momentum going into the second quarter. So the US um, uh, growth expectations there being revised downwards. Now, that's important because although the Fed put out a tentative signal, if you like, some months ago that, well, yeah, first rate rise probably around June. Nobody believes that anymore. Uh, the uh, expectations for the first rate rise in the US have been pushed back to September and analysts basically working to push them back even further to December or beyond. So the US is still doing okay, uh, but that first rate rise will be some time yet. Now, the I guess the second major story, certainly from an Australian perspective, is, is about China. Uh, China's uh, first quarter GDP, a little disappointing. Uh, in the, in the last few days, they've done things in opposite directions. They've tried to curb activity in their share market, then realized that um, that was possibly going to have too big an effect. So the very next day, they cut the um, reserve requirement ratio uh, for the banking sector, and they cut it by a full 1%. Now, this is a clear signal that they're trying to stimulate that economy. And it could well be the, well, it's not the first, but it could well be just one in a number of moves to, to get economic growth going in China. The, it's a good move from the point of view of Australia, but it's been done because um, it's sort of a recognition that growth there a bit softer than expected. Now, uh, the, the uh, skip over Japan, that's really a minor story at the moment, and come to Europe. Europe is, is, if anything, a bit of a success story at the moment. Growth forecasts there have been marked up month after month after month for the previous or five or six months now. That's um, in part because the euro has come down as much as it has, and in part, and this is associated, quantitative easing in Europe. Now, the quantitative easing program in Europe is different from other programs in this sense, that the amount of government bonds that the ECB is planning to buy is far in excess of the new issue of bonds. So what that means is that existing holders of bonds pretty much have to sell. And what that does is it gets you very, very low interest rates, number one. And number two, the money coming out of the bond market held by privates, if you like, in, in Europe, has to go somewhere. And, uh, and of course, it's going into the sh European share markets. It's going to other share markets. And so what's going on in Europe is one reason why asset markets are continuing to plough ahead at the rate of not. So as I said, it's a mixed growth picture out there. But I think at the end of the day, 2015 uh, will be another year of moderate growth only in the world economy. Now, with Europe, I mean, the interesting part is that, of course, you've got the prospect of Greece leaving the Eurozone and uh, negotiations are continuing there. And you've got the ongoing issue of deflation happening there. 
And you've got good performances coming out of places like Spain, but France, uh, which is your second biggest economy, is struggling. I mean, what's your reading of this? Correct. Um, there is a disparate performance going on there. Germany, for example, close to 2% growth probably this year, but, um, but it's not so many months since that expectation was in the low ones. You're right. Deflation is an issue, but I think it's overstated. I, I think um, a, a lot of the deflation is, of course, um, because of falling oil prices, and we know they've stopped falling, and we know, if anything, that will um, that will add to inflation in the future. So, yeah, it's true. You've had very low inflation readings in Europe, in the United Kingdom. We'll get one here in Australia. Um, very low inflation readings, but you also know that that corner will be turned. Inflation, underlying inflation, will, of course, um, still remain low. But I think the issue of deflation has been overstated. The issue really is continued low growth. But there's a massive difference in Europe between continued low growth and return to recession. There will be no return to recession in Europe, including in your nominated country, France. Right, right. And uh, what's the prospect of Greece leaving the Eurozone? Well, who um, who knows? Um, this story just seems to go on and on and on. There's a uh, there's a European Union meeting this week. There's a deadline on the 11th or the 12th of May, depending on on what you read about. Um, any of these could trigger a um, uh, a Greek exit, but it's very unlikely, in my view, that Greek will exit the euro. Certainly, in the foreseeable future, um, there's just too much invested in them staying in the euro. But I also think that if they do leave, yeah, there'll be a there'll be a massive amount of volatility for some time, for some weeks or whatever. Um, but um, but I don't see it as a as a major depressant to financial markets, and 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 that puts it in stark contrast to the situation as recently as 2012, where, you know, just the mere threat that the austerity party may win the election, for example, caused our, our share market fall by 7% in a single month. Um, nobody, uh, at least nobody that I know of, um, thinks of, of a Greek exit if it happens as being as bad an event as they thought it might be just three years ago. So uh, that would suggest the markets would have factored in Greece leaving the Eurozone wouldn't it? Oh, I think there's a probability of Greece leaving factored in, but I'm not sure how big that probability is. Of course, the, the bizarre thing is, if analysts and markets have decided it won't be such a calamity if they do leave, that itself actually increases the chance they could leave um, because uh, because there'll be less emergency measures, if you like, put in place to stop them leaving. But, yeah, I imagine some probability of a Greek exit is factored in, but if it happens, there'll still be volatility. There's no question about that. So in view of all this global scene, what do you see the impact on Australia? Of what we've talked about, of course, the biggest issue is China. And the issue there, as we were reminded by Glenn Stevens, is that their demand for our iron ore is still growing, but it's not growing at a rate to keep pace with supply. So um, we've got this incredible falling ore price scenario. Now, the ore price has, in fact, um, turned around and ticked back up. But we're going to have to live with uh, a low iron ore price for some time. And we know now that affects federal revenues. We know it's the number one factor behind the downturn in mining capital spending. And we also know it's an income loss for Australia. So um, we have to adjust, if you like, to this new world where growth is going to be low and income growth even lower 
unless and until the rest of the economy picks up enough to offset it. That requires the exchange rate to move lower still. That may well require lower interest rates yet. That's working. Lower interest rates and lower exchange rate are working. They're working in the area of residential construction. They're working in the area of consumer spending. There's been no real pickup yet in non-mining capital spending, and that is what we desperately need in order to finally get some growth going in the Australian economy. Until that happens, we're going to muddle along. Now, of course, the other thing we've learned very recently is that it's just possible that the unemployment rate has stopped going up. Yeah, We can't be absolutely sure of that, but it has gone down in the past two months. And if that's a true indicator of a turning point, that's great news for Australia. Right. And so what's needed to get the non-mining investment up? It's a good question. Um, it doesn't seem that the cost of capital is holding back uh, non-mining investment. So what is holding it back? Well, I suppose, um, and the Reserve Bank has made this point, animal spirits, confidence is still lacking. Uh, and if you ask why business confidence is still lacking, I suppose it's because slow growth has gone on for as long as it has. And so that feeds upon itself. But, but my suspicion is also it's got something to do with Canberra. Um, and that is with the political situation. And so once that's sorted out, and if it does get sorted out and confidence returns, we can expect a pickup in non-mining investment. I think if we wait until people have confidence in the political process in Australia for mining investment to turn, then we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> my, my suspicion is that, that you know the private sector basically has to... Uh, well, Obviously, if you if you delay investment for long enough, eventually you have to do it. And my suspicion is we'll get a turnaround in mining capex from that, if you like, just from the natural business cycle rather than waiting for the political situation to improve. Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Well, that was awesome, Gary, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Terrific. It's, it's really good to have Chris among the economists in Australia. He ranks very highly. Yes, yes, and it's uh, great that we have him on board. And uh, now let's look at the week's news. And, uh, well, Gary, <laughs> China's pulled out all stops to get its economy back in order. Its central bank has cut the level of funds that commercial banks have to hold in reserve by one percentage points. That's the second move this year to boost lending. And it comes days after the world's second biggest economy reported its worst quarterly growth figure for six years. Gross domestic product slowed to 7% in the first quarter from 7.3 in the final three months of last year. That's the worst result I've said in six years. Growth in industrial output, retail sales slowed in March, while the figure for fixed asset investment also weakened in the first three months of the year. And Chinese business sentiment actually stinks at the moment, Gary. It's sunk to its lowest level since 2009, according to the MNI China Business Sentiment Indicator. It fell to 48.8 in April. That's down from 52.2. Yeah, it's a bit like our economy where, where I think there's a problem of uh, confidence in the middle class in China and uh, they've been a bit careful. And, of course, a lot of them are exporting money overseas, buying properties and things like that, and that's had an effect on us. But, uh, yeah, I, I think China's a bit of a worry right now. Absolutely. And uh, fears of a Greek exit from the EU have grown this week after the head of the European Central Bank said – they have buffers in place to avoid a chain reaction 
if a country was forced out. I mean, that might just be part of the negotiation, Gary, where they're saying, we don't care if you leave. So, uh, you know, we're, we're hanging in there, but they say their buffers will be sufficient for keeping the Eurozone afloat with a country to crash out by defaulting on their debts to the International Monetary Fund. ECB President Mario Dargas made it clear that the Eurozone is no longer vulnerable to chain reaction experience during early phases of the debt crisis. Yeah, one of the problems, of course, is the uh, is the Russian influence on Greece and also on Cyprus. I mean, there are Russian battleships right alongside a, a British uh, Royal Air Force base in in Cyprus, and the Russians are very, very interested in gaining influence in Greece and in Cyprus. Well, they're hoping to get hold of Greece's privatised assets, but, I mean, the Eurozone at the same time, I don't think they want Greece to leave because they have just raised the amount the Greek central bank can lend its banks to 75.5 billion euro. That's up from 74 billion the week ago. And the Greek government, meanwhile, has put out a decree ordering all its public agencies to turn in their financial reserves to the Treasury to meet payments because the state's coffers are entering. And Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras' cash government has launched an appeal for public agencies to turn over their reserves on a voluntary basis. And now it's going to be compulsory and the money's going to be transferred to the Bank of Greece, where it will be held in a special account and earn an interest of 2.5%. Yeah, well, remember in Cyprus, and I know Cyprus is tiny and it's probably got the worst economic problems in the world, but uh, they just went into the banks and said, everybody's going to give us 30% of their deposits. That's right, that's right. And meanwhile, to Australia, you've got plunging oil prices punching a $25 billion hole in Australian government revenues. We talked about that last week. But now... The federal government is signalling there's almost no chance of any significant improvement in the $104 billion of deficits forecast over the next four years. And indeed, the figure might get worse because on Sunday, Treasurer Joe Hockey said a falling deficit in relation to the size of the economy, and that's quite significant, was the primary measure of fiscal repair. Now, that is a meaningful shift in his language. He's talking about a falling deficit in relation to the size of the economy. He's not talking about a dollar figure, Gary. No. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we're going to be in deficit for a long time, I think. Well, it's suggesting he's backing away from his earlier forecast of making inroads in the size of the budget deficit in dollar terms. And this year's deficit is expected to top $40 billion. There's growing evidence next year's figure will be similar, if not worse. Mm, yeah. Now, to around Australia, and bricks and mortar have cemented New South Wales as Australia's strongest economy. The most popular state has pushed West Australia off the pedestal late last year. It's now the top performer for a third consecutive quarter. And Concept State of the States report shows that its strength is supported by housing construction with population growth spurring demand for new home. WA is a third-ranked state after holding the crown for four years because iron ore prices are plummeting and the mining investment boom is fading. Just behind WA is Victoria, which is Australia's best-performing state for housing finance. Queensland's leading the nation where it comes to overall construction, lagging on employments. Uh, the growing fastest-growing joblessness behind WA. South Australia ranks last for new home building and Tasmania remains at the bottom of the economic league table. I might add that the Northern Territory comes in second. Second? That's interesting, yeah. But uh, bad news with the economy. Uh, the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has just been released and the news isn't good. From a week earlier, confidence fallen by 0.9% to 108.8%. That's the lowest level since August last year. That's the lowest in eight months. Mm. And uh, it's a trend since media coverage of the upcoming budget began to ramp up. 
And it looks like it's going to struggle for the rest of the year because the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index has fallen back into negative territory, uh, declining by 0.64 percentage points to negative 0.14 in March. That's down from 0.50 in February. And meanwhile, the Department of Employment's latest vacancy report shows that job advertisements on the internet are still 50% below their March 2008 peak. Yeah, well, unemployment is going to be increasingly a problem in Australia as the mining investment falls off and uh, as automotive and other manufacturing uh, takes a beating. That's right. Meanwhile, Australia's central bank governor, Glenn Stevens, has paved the way for a cut in interest rates next month. He's told a New York audience, actually a Goldman Sachs conference, that the question of an even lower cash rate target has to be on the table. And he said inflation risks in Australia are low, so interest rates should be low and falling. And he said there's a big concern about the booming Sydney property market, getting, but he says that gets a lot of it too much attention and more interest rate cuts are possible. Now, the reality is two years of double-digit home price growth in Sydney have heightened fears of a property bubble, but Stephen says too much attention is being given to Sydney because prices in other capital cities are under control. Well, yeah, maybe. Melbourne prices have also increased, so it's across the board, really. And part of the problem, I think, is that uh, you've got Chinese banks using the uh, property purchase, not only in Australia, but elsewhere, uh, in effect, you know, legally or not, but in effect, to launder money. Yeah, well, that's going to keep going. And adding to the pressure on the RBA, Gary, is that the official inflation rate has risen at its slowest pace in nearly three years. CPI lifted by 0.2% in three months to March. That's brought the annual rate to 1.3%. That's going to put more pressure on the RBA to cut interest rates, Gary. That's right. But, I mean, of course, every time there's a cut, there's less room to manoeuvre. That's right, that's right. Meanwhile, the other week we talked about tax reform and clamping down on multinationals dodging taxes. Well, the Australian and UK are joining forces to clamp down on profit shifting by multinational companies. But Treasurer Joe Hockey says that won't involve a new tax here. Now, Hockey and the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, agreed at last week's G20 meeting in Washington to set up a working group after the British election in May to tackle tax avoidance by big global companies. Now, Hockey says Australia can learn from the UK's experience of introducing a diverted profits tax at the beginning of April, which people know as the Google tax. But he says Australia won't be doing the same thing. And as a result, Labor's saying it's just all talk and no action. Well, if Joe was a little more forthcoming, I guess it is ultimately it have to be. But, you know, sort of saying something's going to happen and everybody, it just undermines business confidence as well. That's right. Now, uh, super funds have nailed their best three-month performance in three years, returning 5.7% during the March quarter. That's according to Super Ratings founder Jess Bresnahan. And um, the medium balance super fund uh, holds as- growth assets of 60 to 76%, which is nearly 65% of uh, pooled super funds. It doesn't include self-managed super funds. And that lift comes despite falls in equities and growth assets in March. Um, Australian equities, international equities and property all recorded losses for the month. So super's doing really well, Gary. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, it's a heck of a politics of money, actually. And I wonder sometimes if it keeps on growing, how they're going to uh, find investments. That's right. Now, the iron ore price is heading south, so Oz Minerals is expanding its focus beyond copper and it's planned to target value-adding acquisitions both locally and internationally. 
The mine announced it's completed a strategic three-month review of its operations and it's concluded it needs to become a leaner, highly agile and decisive company focused on growth and creating long-term value. And so it's going to be look for value accretive assets throughout Australia. And that could include other base metals and gold where coal capabilities are reasonably transferable. So Alt Minerals is, is expanding. Yeah, and it's not dependent on, uh, on iron ore prices either. It's into other minerals. That's right. Now, um, the big news for the week, of course, was uh, shareholders in Australia's biggest construction group, Leighton Holdings, have approved a name change for the company 65 years after it was formed in Melbourne by Englishman Stanley Leighton. And the international contractor is eyeing $520 million in full-year net profit after tax. The name change comes after... Its new Spanish owners tried to distance itself from corruption allegations. So it's shed an Australian brand that has existed for more than 60 years. So it's now going to be known as CIMIC, C-I-M-I-C. Yeah, and uh, I've forgotten what that stands for, but, uh, yeah, it's not a bad sort of a moniker. Well, well, it continues to be haunted by corruption allegations because the Federal Police and Australian Securities and Investments Commission are investigating former Leighton's executives over the company's dealings between 2009-2011 prior to its takeover by ACS early last year. And police are expected to charge several former executives over alleged bribery linked to a multi-million dollar pipeline in Iraq. Yeah, and I guess nobody will forget the uh, pictures of those executives with uh, pistols and whatnot when they were visiting in Iraq. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, we'll be back next week. That's right. Next week we have a great interview with Chris Ridd from Zero. Should be terrific. Yeah, absolutely. Zero is really making some goals. It's a global company and uh, you're doing very, very well by the look of it. That's it. And that's it for us this week. So in the meantime, you can tune into us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.